have any interest in the use of string instruments in multiple styles of music, including classical, and you're not living under a rock, you've probably bumped into Julie Lyon Lieberman. She is one of the most prolific strings educators in America. She's written 13 books, published six DVDs, composed and arranged over 24 orchestral scores, written over 50 magazine articles, and taught at pretty much every important camp festival and program, including her own Strings Without Boundaries. Julie was one of the earliest people to recognize that plugging in your violin would open doors for students, and she's been a huge player in that space for decades. No list of influential players, writers, composers, and teachers would be complete without her. Welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the most innovative and important string players alive. I'm your host, Matt Bell. If you enjoy this podcast, please do us a favor by liking, subscribing, commenting, and most importantly, sharing with your friends. I got a chance to catch up with Julie by Zoom. I'm in my studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, and she's in her studio in Worthington, Massachusetts. I'm editing this on National Dog Day, so it's only appropriate that her dog makes a brief appearance in our chat, even though I'm just accusing of something he didn't do. Anyway, that's enough of this silliness. Let's get on with my chat with Julie Lyon Lieberman, rock star violinist. Okay, so you want me to start with what I've been up to this past year. Yikes. When COVID hit, like everyone else, I lost all of my on-the-road work. I canceled Strings Without Boundaries, my summer program, but a student pointed out that I could do it online. So I'm proud to say I was the first to switch over. Everybody else was hanging on to do it live until they finally realized that they couldn't. But I got a little carried away, so I did, instead of one in a year, I did three. That was a little bit too much, but it was it was great. It was really great. Wonderful artists and wonderful sessions. Um, I have done over Zoom numerous school residencies, teacher training, uh, fiddle hell and performing over the computer for fiddle hell, which was rather interesting with a another guest artist named Matt Bell. Yeah, that was a good concert. I was I was uh, I was excited to be on that. That was fun. Like I'm going to I'm going to do my thing and then I'm going to watch some real players. <laughs> well, let's pause for a second. I want to unplug my hard drive because it'll make sounds. I heard it. Yeah. Do you want me was, to say I was going to blame it on your dog. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like he had indigestion, didn't it? All right, I unplugged that, so hopefully that's off and won't make any more sounds. That is that is the cord for that, right? I have so many wires and cords, I try to keep track where they all go, but sometimes I just don't know. You know, this is the trailer audio. You just gave me the trailer audio just now, right? I'm going to unplug it. Yeah, it sounded like my dog had indigestion. I got so many wires. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen to my conversation with Julie Lyon Lieberman. <laughs> and I washed my hair. It's a good thing I didn't put makeup on. Okay, I take my ears. Oh, we didn't get that recorded. Oh, darn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do have shorts on. 
I have a clean t-shirt on so I wouldn't be smelly during the interview. Yeah. It's a good, yeah, we don't have smell-o-vision. It's all good. <laughs> it took me a while, though, to realize that I should turn the camera off if I needed to tend to something and turn the, mute my mic and turn the camera off. I think we all had a wonderful learning curve this past year. Oh, and um, I'm the so most, over it. Yes. Well, we all are, but it'll continue. So, you know, pandemic makes everybody sort of change gears. You've gone to teaching online and doing conferences online and all that. And, um, but way, way, way before all that, you were plugging in anyway, right? Yeah, well. Um, I mean, you've been I've on the had... cutting edge of, of amplified violin for, uh, what are you, like 29 or something now? For a while. Right? Yeah, I'm 29. I've been plugging in for a couple hundred years. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, I've always been bad at math, so I'm not quite sure how that figures it out. It all works out. Don't worry. Yeah, it all works out. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, back in the 70s, of course, we had very little to work with, and um, there was a lot of trial and error on instruments. I have a vintage Barkus Berry from the 1960s, but I didn't get that until later on. Um, I started with some cheapo, awful pickup, but back then, what did we know about tone? That's you all there was, yeah. Yeah, you didn't know what to expect. You didn't know what you should put up with or fight against, or at least I didn't. So uh, the Fishman pickup, I think, might have been my second pickup. I used a... Um, mouse amp because you could charge it and then it could run on batteries hmm. and it was very lightweight and my true introduction to electronic effects came by playing at a healing arts festival where i met a um, an artist named laraji venus a brian eno recording artist uh, he played on the ambiance series that brian eno created and laraji his instrument is um, a hammered dulcimer. Okay. Zither, zither, really, I guess. And so he had amplified, he had figured out how to amplify it. And then he'd figured out all different kinds of sounds with chopsticks, with drumsticks, with all different, not just what you would normally do on the instrument. And then putting it through. Uh, back then, we didn't have stomp boxes where you had 100 effects in one box. You know, you're right. da daisy chaining all these little boxes. So he introduced me to all of that because we p performed in, this, in the same evening on the same concert. I played acoustically, and then he sat cross-legged with all this stuff. And I was, whoa, ah, get me some of that. Right. <laughs> And then we started touring together, and, and my, the first recording I made was with him. Um, I just suited up the way he did. I got myself a phase shifter and a delay and, you know, whatever I could find and afford back then. And he taught me to get a luggage cart and how to 
put the amp on that and put the bag of effects on that and strap it on so you're not carrying anything. Although going down the subway in New York City and coming back up, uh, you had to carry that whole luggage rack and nobody ever offered to help. Oh, New York is like the worst place to have to do all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Imagine rush hour when you're trying to carry all that stuff and you're packed like sardines. But... Um, that that was really my start with being plugged in. This is one of Julie's tunes with Laraji called Dance with Celestrana. As time went by, I began, like everybody else, to collect every effect that new effect that came out and try it out, and it ended up in my my storage area. When I closed my music studio in New York City in 2008, ooh, my students were leaving with big smiles <laughs> and piles from under their chin down into their hands trying to hail a taxi cab with their pinky to bring all their goodies home with them. So I got rid of everything I wasn't using because by then um, my improvising violin book, the original version, which isn't what's available out there now, I interviewed folks like Michael Urbaniak and uh, an unknown fellow named Mark Wood. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he like, got his start back in the back in the day. Yeah. Yep. That, that was around 1979, 1980. Um, he told me back then that I was the first person really to believe in him and and promote what he was doing. And I still have pictures that he gave me back then for the original version of improvising violin with uh, the instrument that would send out a rocket and the one with the big oh, hand yeah. that would sit and all that kind of stuff. He's, He's still got, got some of those in his studio. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. Um, so he turned me on to Zoom. He had a teensy one that fit in the palm of his hand. I think he's still using it. Wow. They last forever. I have some from way back then that are that work perfectly well. I think I only sold one off, but um, 
the one I have now is probably 20, 25 years old. I got a newer one. I didn't like it as much. Go figure. So um, I do like having for for getting on and off airplanes because I reached a point where I was doing five states a month and teaching in New York City and then commuting to Connecticut to see my husband on weekends. Um, I uh, I like to be able to pack everything in a lightweight gear bag that I bring on the plane with me with my double case and then NS Design kindly ships my amp to wherever I'm going. So that's oh, how I have handled that all these years. And I use a, a Fishman Loudbox. Um, and um, I've used that, the smaller one is the one I ship out. I have a larger one too, but I've used that small one performing with five orchestras simultaneously in a theater the size of the Kennedy Center with backing tracks going through a mixer and my instrument going through the mixer and not even had to turn that amp up halfway. It was mm. loud enough to fill the entire space. It's a pretty amazing amp. And I do like the tone of it. So that is my preferred amp, though I have tried many others, as have all of us, haven't we? Oh my goodness, can I tell you how much equipment I've owned through the years? Yeah. Yeah. If I had half of that money back, <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. I know. I, I guess we're all in that same situation. Of course, there's new stuff that comes out all the time. I remember writing a magazine article for, this was a New York City publication called Not Just Jazz. And I actually wrote a few articles for them, but this one in particular was something, the title was something like, the light touch or I can't remember the exact title they chose the title because what they noticed was that everybody was going crazy with effects like beyond the beyond where you just couldn't even hear the the arc of the musical line there was so much sound around it and so that article I focused on artistry and sculpting one sound with um discretion shall we say i'm sure i'm paraphrasing at this point in time in rock and roll well. discretion <laughs> well you that is a novel keep... concept that would be worthy of an article <laughs> yes but you have to keep in mind i mean you and i are coming at this from very different sides of the fence so to speak because you're you know you are a true rock and roller i am not yes i can hold my own with any rock band but I'm more blues, jazz, and world styles. That is really my thing. And um, I modify, you know, there was a period of time where I composed a lot for dance and I composed a lot for off-Broadway theater. And depending on what they needed, and in many cases I performed live with the productions, I would do whatever sounds were needed, um, you know, just to switch over. But then there were other jobs like, um, I I did a, 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 it was a one single performance designed for radio, but it was done live with famous actors and all that, that Alec Baldwin directed. And it was uh, The Devil and Daniel Webster. He did it as a test because he was thinking about making it into a movie and really doing his thing with it. And uh, for that, I played on a white Barkus Berry with a white 
um, music Harry bow from from France, which you can't get anymore. I still own it. Um, but I was playing fiddle, you know, amplified fiddle for that particular production. So the beauty, I think, that I see for today's player, one, is that classical training inadvertently drove out the state of play. It became very serious business with a lot of fear. Fear of making mistakes, fear of doing it wrong, and created many generations of players that don't breathe. Literally. <laughs> yeah, li yeah, literally. <laughs> that constantly beat themselves up. The joy is gone. I have worked with many of these players. I won't name anyone. Oh, they've um, created so many head cases. Oh, yeah. And some of them, uh, it's been so serious that I've recommended therapy, but others I've been able to help them through those quagmires. Um, finding one's own voice on the instrument, I believe, requires the state of play. This is what we do when we're born. We play with everything. We get reprimanded. Remember my father telling me how fascinated he was with his father's watch. So one day he took it apart to see how it worked. Oh boy, did he uh, pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a very stern father. Uh, but um, to get back to the state of play, it's a natural the minute you get an amplified instrument, whether it's a solid body or you put a pickup on or what, however you're doing that, you are now in a state of play because you're experimenting with brand new sounds and every single um, stomp box that you get amplifies that state of play. You like the pun there? Amplifies. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I've been working on that for uh, 20 years. You've been now. waiting how long to use that? Yeah. <laughs> it did roll off the top of my head, which makes me very, very proud. <laughs> that state of play can then, for those players who want to maintain their their Western European chops and identity and, and double, triple, quadruple that with other styles, etc., they can bring that back with them to the classic literature. You know, just because it's written out doesn't mean that one has to lose oneself. You don't have to become anonymous. You can be who you are. Now, we certainly have evidence of artists who have paid a big price for this. I remember Dorothy DeLay uh, reprimanding and threatening Nigel Kennedy if he was going to go and jam with um, Yudi Menuhin and, and Stefan Grappelli when they were playing in town and things like that. But um, for the most part, those of you who get into a state of play and you're still studying, if you know that your classical teacher is uh, not into this, just don't tell them because don't let them ruin this for you.
Well, so, you know, nobody starts amplifying because it's convenient, right? Because it's absolutely not. So what was the reason that you were, I mean, you said that you were inspired by some of the sounds that Laraji was getting. Is that why you started to plug in? Because you wanted to get those sounds or were you already starting to play venues that were bigger than what would work for an acoustic? Well, I was starting to catch on that most engineers didn't know how to deal with a, um, a boat string instrument. <laughs> Too much treble and you'd hear bow sound and sound horrible. So I did want to get in control of my sound, but there wasn't really much to work with back then. So it's been an ongoing project, which it has been for all of us who get into it. And of course, as technology moves forward, we have so many wonderful new options to explore, and it's certainly worth it. And we now have folks like you, Matt Bell, and the Electric Violin Shop, and other artists who are putting out um, videos and audio training new string players so that they don't have to buy everything. They can actually hear this is what this sounds like, this is what that sounds like. Oh, I like the, I like what's behind board, door number 52, not door yeah. number 28. And yes, the numbers are increasing. They're probably they are getting big, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at what point did you know that you weren't going to be a, a classical soloist or, you know, what, because, I mean, you started playing young and, you know, of course, everybody trains on, you know, this, the same kind of repertoire. At what point did you realize that, you know, one of these is not like the others? Um, how old are you when you reach junior high school? Yeah, like, you know, what, 12? Yeah, because my family... My parents and my cousins were deeply involved in producing folk music concerts. Mm. Now, we didn't call world music world music back then. We called it folk music. And But I got to hear artists from all over the world and fall in love with many styles of music that I would never have been exposed to otherwise like Bayakante on, um, from Africa, um, uh, artists from Ireland, from England, from Scotland, from before Irish music, before there were Irish art centers here in the United States, all of that. Um, the, the beauty of this for me was a bit different than just attending a folk music festival because my family was so deeply entrenched in this I got to travel with the then most famous Irish group the boys of the loch because my cousins were booking their US tour and so I got to go to folk festivals with them my cousins bought a uh, a hearst that's <laughs> awesome used one you know, to fit all the instruments and the band and everybody in there so the boys of the loch came before the chieftains and then the chieftains became the big deal. Um, by traveling with relatives that were producing concerts, that meant that I got to go to jam sessions. And so what did I know about improvisation? Nothing. I didn't even know it existed. All I knew was that you stood at a music stand and cranked it out. But as soon as I started going to folk festivals, which was a, a fairly young age, there would 
be jam sessions all night long and people it was a whole different environment instead of being judged and having to to compete for your seat in orchestra and all that kind of stuff you're now in book number three my first teacher was samuel applebaum you know so i was learning right out of his string builder books so i could see there was a progression to this now in one way um, he did me a favor because I thought as a young person that all string teachers wrote their own books. Oh, <laughs> Look wow. what he did to me 14 books later. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, my, my first teacher did that. I just thought that that was... A, I'm starting to pick up your accent now, Matt. And why I have to be... You know, those musicians' ears. So this really was an incredible experience for me where I could sit in a circle with people who were supportive and and inviting me to participate and inviting my own ideas and never judging me, never looking down their noses, oh, she's just a kid, you know, and she's never done this before. I would say in all of those years, the only time I heard a critical comment was at, after a folk festival going back to somebody's house that was hosting some of the artists and then jamming all night standing in the kitchen I won't mention the artists names but you know famous artists in the folk music world and I'm jamming with them and having a grand time and I'm playing my heart out and oh and we're in the kitchen it's like playing in a bathroom it sounds so good and all that stuff and then I had to go to the bathroom and as I came back I heard them talking through the swinging door and they were saying well, she's a good player, but she never stops playing. Like, give someone else a chance to solo. Well, what did I know that yeah, you were supposed to do that? I thought jamming meant that you just kept playing. I didn't realize that you trade solos. And so who's going to teach you these things? There was right. no book out about it or anything. Sometimes like you got to go to the bathroom so they can talk about you. <laughs> Oh, I was mortified. I didn't dare go back into the kitchen, and my violin was sitting in an open case on the kitchen table. I didn't dare go in there. I, I just walked around until they cleared out of there, and then I went and got it. I, 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 was, pro I was probably beat red from, you know, from that. But I learned an important lesson, and I wish they had just explained to me. Yeah. Hey, kid, <laughs> but, uh, you did great. It's somebody yeah. else's turn now. Yeah. Well, maybe they thought I knew and I was disregarding. I don't know. Right. But, uh, you know, years later, actually, one of them came to me privately because, you know, I work with injured musicians and he had an injury. So I guess I didn't get on his really bad list. <laughs> and the other I've hired for a gig in New Jersey because that's where he lives. And he was happy to do it. So I guess we get past these things yeah, and right. I want to get that message out there because you come from western canon you want to climb under a rock if anything right. goes wrong and never never play in front of people again and i have certainly met a lot of people who where that happened and we've had to a lot of students we've had to work our way through that but the the good news is that um and the and i believe there's a famous film where he says i made a mistake and the other person says good go out and make another one yeah and that's the way when you're in a state of play that's the way to lean and that's you know my teachers had um had taught me that when you make a mistake i want to hear it meaning don't don't be timid 
if if you're gonna if you're gonna make a mistake, make it boldly, and you know well, don't make that mistake again. But play with with some uh, you know some chutzpah. You were lucky. You were one of the lucky ones. I studied with eight famous teachers, and none of them ever said that to me. If, if you're gonna make a mistake, I want to hear it. That's I, okay. I guess I yeah I guess I was lucky. It's yeah. maybe that's why I play so stinking loud. <laughs> I want you to hear all my mistakes. There you go. <laughs> There's another one. There's another one. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that when you play something that's notated, the artist slash composer that created that music was in a state of play when they wrote it. They were improvising. They were going through trial and error to arrive at what they considered the final final but maybe if we um, brought them back to life at this point hundreds of years later and asked them to um, revisit those pieces of music they might oh i'm gonna change that Ooh, i could do better there because isn't that what we're always doing we're always honing our craft and if we keep that in mind and not think in terms of a final product that has to be perfect, that we're just in a state of evolution, this can bring so much more joy to us when we're practicing and performing. Well, I think just the, as I've studied music history, as you know, this modern view that those notes on the page are somehow sacred canon and not to be messed with, is really not historically accurate. That's a new interpretation. It used to be into the Baroque period that it was expected that you would embellish things and that you would, you know, figured bass even, there's so, that the options are left wide open for the performer to make their own choices. And we've somehow decided that, well, this has been locked in and, and Mozart put that note there and you can only play that note this one way. I think he would be just flabbergasted He'd be like, what are you talking about? I just made something up. I agree with you totally, totally. Well, in my experience, you know, because I've studied the brain so much, uh, particularly while working on my book, You Are Your Instrument, I've come to the conclusion that musicians have the opportunity to build, because we're always growing new brain cells to build a completely different kind of brain than the one if you'd only studied Western canon your entire life and never done anything else. You build a very different brain than that. So basically, you're involved in translating dots on paper into muscle moves. The hope is, and of course Suzuki made a huge contribution to this, that you hear what you see before you sound it out on your instrument but the teachers I studied with were pre-Suzuki, and that's mm. not how, you know, I had to go back and develop my ears because when I inherited the first generation, because I only worked with adult players in my music studio in New York City, when I inherited the first generation of adults that had grown up on Suzuki training, I realized that they had something going on that I did not. So that brain, that translates those dots into muscle moves and the way the artist memorizes the music they're only using very small segments of their brain and what i call the musical brain 
the potential for the learning centers and the developmental centers that we can use are far greater than actually classically trained are using. And so that transformation can take some time. It's very, um, it's not surprising when a classically trained player says they're afraid of making a mistake because they haven't actually learned the music in all the quadrants of the musical brain. For anyone that then bridges into other styles of music, they're still applying the old brain and or the old way of training it. Most styles worldwide are learned through the ears first. So those of you who are trained through Suzuki, you have an advantage and you're, you've been learning the same way as the rest of the world. Notation was just invented to capture longer pieces of music, right. but often what happens from early training is that you create an arrangement for a new style and you go to perform it and you're still standing there worrying that you're going to play it wrong or mess something up. And so I would say that, and of course, you know, when you're plugged in, everything's much louder. Mm. <laughs> you get to hear the changes you're making to the music in a new way. And so you cannot really hide anything. And so I say, just follow the trail. Something new comes out of you, congratulate yourself and follow the trail. It will be different, but it, it will be far more captivating because you're experiencing it in real time along with your audience. Well, I mean, we say that it, music is a language and we don't treat spoken word that way, right? If you sort of trip on your words or you say something in public speaking that, wow, that wasn't really the word I was looking for, you continue to speak, you just sort of correct what that was, and then that becomes the, that becomes the sentence, right? So we can do that in music. You learn that, well, I played a C-sharp there. That's not really what I meant to play, but okay, what comes next? Let's make that C-sharp mean something by what I play after that. Mm -hmm. that's and now right. that's what everybody heard, and that's the sentence. A big turning point for me in this regard, uh, when I was, before I was actually performing at this particular folk festival that my cousins and, and my parents were involved in, in producing, uh, I'm sitting out on a piece of cloth, you know, on the grass, listening to the concert at the folk music festival. And they had brought in an artist from either Ireland or England. I, I Sadly, I, I just don't remember who it was, but he had a beautiful accent and he was playing passionately on the guitar and singing. And all of a sudden he said, I dropped me pick. <laughs> and and he went right on with his passion he went right on singing and he bent over and he scooped up his pick and he and he made it a part of his performance and i'm sitting there oh, he wasn't embarrassed he wasn't humiliated and he used the same energy he was putting into the song to tell us what had just happened and to just continue i thought how is that possible wow I want to be able to do that. So that, <laughs> the big turning point, that was one of them. Of course, hearing all this 
rich music and scratching my head like why when I get to orchestra do I have to play how come we don't get to decide as a group what we're going to perform what we're going to rehearse and I didn't like the taste of the conductor who was choosing the music I didn't like anything he brought and so I lasted two years and I dropped out of orchestra because I just I hated the experience and I hated the fact that you had to audition to be seated and that we all knew who was going to sit in the first two seats because the conductor was close friends with their parents because their parents were musicians as well. So we all knew we didn't stand a chance and then we thought less of ourselves, that we didn't have those connections and that we would never have that opportunity to move up in that way. And one of the tools I learned uh, in that world, which happily I have not had to use in in the world I've lived in, the musical world I've lived in ever since. But I, I found that anger became a great tool because I practiced harder when I was angry. You're talking to a rock guy. We know all about anger. I figured <laughs> <that>. <laughs> We're just trying to break stuff over here. <laughs> you're you're in a in a constant state of therapy. Remember That's what right. happened to me when I was five? Well, boom! Turn it up! Turn it up! <laughs> like Earl, Earl, our friend Earl Manian is like the only angry rock guy I know. All the other rock guys are chill because they get to they get to beat their anger out on stage. They're like, I don't have to carry that with me anywhere else. Earl just stays mad. <laughs> Well, I got mad and I took something that the whole first violin section kept messing up and I practiced it. I practiced harder that week than I think I had ever had up to that point in time. And I came back to the next rehearsal, not knowing he was going to do this, but he went stand by stand. And those two first violinists, the first and second chairs, uh, they messed it up. And then the next stand messed it up. And the next stand, it got to stand number five. My partner messed it up and I played it perfectly and the whole orchestra, you know, did their foot stomping thing. It was my only proud moment in two years being in this horrible orchestra. And I'll tell you that the the kid that always had the number one seat and had the fancy, really expensive violin while the rest of us had, you know, $50 or probably less back then, instruments and horrible bows i think my bow weighed the was the weight of a bowling ball <laughs> we all hated him we we weren't taught to be inspired by someone better than us i've learned better i've taught myself this we hated him so one day he put his violin on top of his mother's car to put his gloves on and he forgot to take it off and they drove off. Very expensive instrument for those back then. Sure. The 1700s. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But I think it was like... You a said it was a car. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you caught me. The, he put it on the carriage. <laughs> caught red-headed there. Yeah. It was like a $10,000 violin, which sounds like nothing today, but back then that was like 100000 you know? So we were all giggling about this. We thought this was hysterical, that he'd been humiliated finally after sailing through with such prestige. Well, fast forward, let's see, uh, 20, 30 years, this same person 
the phone rings in my New York City music studio and it's him. I recognize his name. He doesn't recognize mine because he didn't care about anybody that sat behind him. And he wants a lesson with me because he's read my book, You Are Your Instrument, and he's in pain. And he comes down from Boston for a very long session with me because, you know, it's a long drive. And I wait all the way till the end. And I say, so do you ever get back to Montclair, New Jersey anymore? And he looks confused and he's like, I don't remember telling you that I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. And I said, no, you didn't. He said, well, how did you know? I said, because we were in the same orchestra together. But the whole time he was there, I changed his right-hand technique. I changed his left-hand technique. It was abysmal what he was doing. I could see how he had injured himself. And I was getting such satisfaction out of this. So I weave in lessons to our podcast <laughs> that never, when you're in a moment where you know someone is making you feel bad about yourself, maybe on purpose, and in his case, not on purpose, it's just how he's taught to behave at that point in his life, Remember that there's always the future. That's right. Yeah, future me is going to teach you a lesson, buddy. <laughs> or the future me is going to learn from you because I'm jealous of you and I want to have the skills you have and I'm going to I'm going to absorb that and become better as a result. Absolutely. Now you mentioned that you've written some books. You've written a lot of books. Yes, I have. Why don't you uh, Why don't you talk about some of those books? And like, if somebody's going to go buy, go buy them all. Actually, everybody. But if you're going <laughs> to just buy one, which which book would you recommend for for maybe somebody who's going to? Hey, I'm just going to buy one at first, and then maybe you're going to hook them with that book, and they're going to buy the rest. Well, I can't give one single answer. I would say that if rock is your thing. Then my book, the original title was Blues Fiddle. Now it's called Rockin' Out with Blues Fiddle. I changed the title to make the point that if you don't know where rock music comes from, it's time to to learn. It yeah, came buddy. from the blues, right? And um, it it's even bigger than that. Most both string players don't know that it was the violin and voice that invented the blues because both instruments can slide and make textural sounds and um, if i was doing a workshop right now i'd whip out my instrument and sing and play simultaneously to demonstrate this 
It was the slave fiddlers who were taught to play, not out of the kindness of the plantation owner's heart, but yeah. because they could make money off of them. And that book is all original research. It had never been written up um, before. And then I went to the homes of blues collectors with my little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder back then and a little cheapo mic, because that's all I could afford. And the reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder came from a house sale. Lasted a long time, Tanberg tape recorder. And I'd stand next to their 78 player mm. to record these historic blues fiddlers who, lucky us, were caught in the early days of recording. So OK Records, which later became Columbia, sent out a talent scout um, and he came back to them and said, recommended that they start recording black blues artists. This was after slavery had ended. And the because of racism, the Billboard charts had kept, up until uh, Michael Jackson, had kept um, black rock artists in the R&B column and white rock artists who had ripped off the black artists' music and not paid copyright yeah. Thank you, um, in the rock yeah. and roll column. So the these blues fiddlers, they brought melismatic. So melismatic would be uh, let's take a folk song like Old MacDonald. The white style, the Caucasian style would be Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. But melismatic singing, which came from West Africa, oh, oh, MacDonald had a farm. So lots of pop singers today are imitating that, not knowing its point of origin. And that melismatic vocal style in combination with the pentatonic scale, which also came from West Africa, and I actually found recordings that provided this evidence, um, all of that developed into rhythm and blues, which became pop and rock inspired Bill Monroe, who invented bluegrass. He loved the blues, so he took those blue notes, the flat three and the flat five, and he brought it into bluegrass, along with slide technique and, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, Boogie Woogie, with a whole, you go through the whole history of American music, and you see that this one style branched off many ways. So jazz, swing, all of that are outgrowths. And all of this started with voice and violin. But all the jazz players don't even know this. And so they've looked down their noses at violinists until fairly recently that play jazz. Um, now we've got a crop of amazing players that have you know, convinced them that they're worthy, right? But the sax players and the keyboard players and the guitarists and all that, you know, I, back in the day, I'd go to a party and the minute I'd whip out my violin, they'd all stop jamming and walk away and leave me standing there. Nice. Girl with violin. Yeah. <laughs> that was a double whammy. Yep. <laughs> so blues, you got to know about the blues. You got to know your history. It, and they created techniques 
that are very useful to listen to and learn in the raw so that you know where all this came from so that's for you rockers out there but if you're and then in that book I, to to help you plug this book it's not just it's not just a history book like this is also an instruction book too right that's so right. you can learn about the history of the things and that's great but if you're a player you want to learn how to actually do it thank you matt yes there's you know how do, how do you do an introduction how do you do an ending um, what different kinds of slide techniques uh, did they create that are of use to you today? Uh, there, I, I did transcriptions of all these players and then rewrote the transcriptions uh, to, you know, avoid my publisher's copyright worries. Rewrote them into actual tunes, but each one is in the style of that particular player. And it comes with uh, a CD so that you are able to hear me demonstrate it and then the band carries on for another chorus or two for you to play on your own and solo um, against accompaniment. The, um, if you're interested in the musical imagination of the world on both strings, then my book The Contemporary Violinist covers several dozen styles as does my book uh, A Festival of Violin and Fiddle Styles and that book, which came out a couple of years ago, has video tutorials as well as backing tracks. Contemporary Violinist has backing tracks, but the difference being that this newer book uh, has the videos. And it's, I made sure to cover some styles that the Contemporary Violinist styles book, the Contemporary Violinist book covers, but also styles that are, aren't covered, like Galician from Northwestern Spain and, and things like that. And also I, I searched for tunes that aren't quite as common, that would be harder to get your hands on uh, so that you're not like, well, I could find this tune in 20 other books. Right. So that was, that was my goal with that. But in terms of um, my more recent work, how to play contemporary strings and all my books and dvds are with hal leonard uh, that book also has video tutorials and backing tracks and that's really focused on 21st century playing so that's really the the blues jazz rock arena shall we say and then um, i have for string teachers something called 12 rock string lesson plans so that they have at their fingertips mix water and stir comes with the audio it comes with everything that you you need uh, to be able to just step into a classroom knowing nothing yourself and you don't even need to demonstrate that's how <laughs> easy it is to work with this but i also did for vi wickham's video school a series called electric spice so those are video tutorials for anyone, for, for string teachers and for players, basically trying to cover all the basics that you would need to know to get into amplification and to get into special effects and, and, and all of that. So that gives you, uh, I would say, probably the most key resources to, to work with if you're interested in what I have out there. 
And then DVD-wise, uh, I think the Rhythmizing the Bow DVD is probably the most helpful because, you know, I mean, Tracy Silverman and many of my colleagues are now really focused on rhythm. Um, this DVD came out way before their offerings because I was discovering doing teacher training across the United States that even the string teachers were having trouble <laughs> with rhythm like quarter note triplets. Right. And one of the, uh, I wanted to test all my ideas too, so I tested them when I was on the road with its school residencies and with string teacher training. The, the problem we have as string players, if we have learned through our eyes, is that we're then not audiating uh, rhythm in a more interesting, comprehensive fashion. And Western music is not as sophisticated, rhythmically speaking, as the music of India. Mm, where yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah, we've got, you know, 4-4 four, four and 6-8. Oh, yeah, you got 2-4 and 3-4. Well, you know, they're kind of cousins, right? So if not brother and sister or sister and sister. Um, I would say we've got two to four functional rhythms, meaning rhythms in everyday use. If you scrutinize the billboard charts, and um, if we were to take a quiz, for those of you who are listening right now, I'm not going to give you the answer right away. What's the only piece of music that ever made it to number one on the Billboard charts for AM radio that's not in 4-4 time? Oh tick, my goodness, tick, there's no tick, way I would even tick, guess this. Tick, 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 tick. Dave Brubeck, Take 5, which okay. was actually a jazz piece that made it to pop radio to number one on the Billboard charts. That's the only one. Wow. But in India, there are 104 functional rhythms, again, meaning in everyday use. How many of us, if we heard Ravi Shankar playing in 17 and a half eight, would even know that he's doing that? We wouldn't, we don't even have ears for that. So pulling up our ears into the 21st century means embracing rhythmic ideas from around the world. But what I, where I started with on the DVD and in workshop is what I call the basic rhythms. Being able by ear without pause to play four beats of quarter notes right into four beats of quarter note triplets into four beats of eighths, eighth note triplets, sixteenths, quintuplets, sextuplets, and septuplets without a pause and doing it perfectly. I only found one teacher in the whole country who was able to pull that off. I had a metronome going. But when I put the music up in front of them, they, everybody was able to do that. What does that tell you? It tells you they're not hearing it, feeling it. They're just translating dots into muscle moves correctly. That's how they learn to do it. Now, if you can do that, try doing it backwards. It's not just twice as hard. It's like eight yeah, times. Yeah, no doubt, hard. yeah. Yeah. It's as if somebody keeps slowing the metronome down on you. And doing this without coming in early or late was my one of my favorite moments with Michael Urbaniak. If you're not familiar with him, he was the first fusion player that became big in the world from Poland. I interviewed him when he and his wife, Ursula Dudziak, famous jazz singer, moved to New York City. 
I came to their apartment and he played for me and it was before I was savvy to recording these interviews. Ooh, I could kick myself and I do. But, um, and I, I wish I could imitate his wonderful Polish accent because it spices up the story. But, you know, he brought me into his gear room with all his instruments and his effects and everything. The man used a wah-wah pedal like a third hand. Mm, he got that. more sounds out of that wah-wah pedal, an old wah-wah pedal, not like you'd get today, more than I've ever heard even today from any single artist. I couldn't believe my ears. The subtlety of his footwork was incredible. And when he finished, of course, my mouth was hanging open. He said to me that one of the curious things that had happened for him was that using special effects had opened up his ears to the extent where he'd reached a point where he could play acoustically and sound as if he was playing through mm. stomp boxes, which I, I just, that that's really stuck with me. And I think that's a wonderful goal, that we don't become lazy to rely on all these boxes, that we still keep exploring as many sounds as we can on our own, and then supplement with the boxes. Otherwise, it becomes an enormous crutch. And I'll give you an example of this. A fellow called me for a single lesson when I was in New York City. He mostly toured Europe with a rock band and he wanted to pick up some tips. I guess he had one of my books. And uh, I opened the door when he arrived for his lesson and I don't see him because he's got a stack that he has brought with him that was taller than him. He's got it on wheels. He wheels it in. He's booked an hour lesson and he's standing there for 20 minutes hooking everything up. And I'm saying to him, <laughs> if there's no need to hook this up. We're just going to work on your technique. Oh, but I want you to hear what I do with my band so that you know how to coach me. I said, I don't need all of that. No, 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 I have to play through this. So he got everything hooked up. He had every effect ever invented on um, planet Earth, Mars, Venus, and Jupiter. And um, he turns Before you even start, buddy, I know what the problem is. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, he's, he sounded great. And then I asked him to turn all that off. He had a device that was tuning his pitches. He had a device that was making up for his lousy tone. He had, you know, once he played without all of that, you would have thought you were listening to a third grader playing. I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't believe that he was touring with this big name band and being paid so well. I didn't even know where to start with him. I really didn't. And all we had left at that point was about 22 minutes for me to help him technically, which was impossible. Um, so watch out, folks. You still have to do your homework and, and in the basic for the basics. But beyond that, it's really important to explore as many sounds as you can on your own to up your technique and then supplement and no you doubt. know when you listen to folks like matt bell that they've already done that work well, right that's matt a, it's a good theory yep <laughs> <laughs>
So we've talked about a lot of your teaching and then, of course, your writing, too, of, of books. But before you were a teacher, you were a performer and a composer. So I'm going to go back a little bit, maybe in time, and talk okay. about some of your music. So um, what have been some of the... If you were going to tell people, hey, I want you to listen to this particular recording or this song is maybe the one that defines me the best. If you're going to listen to one of my songs, listen to this one. Okay. Well, you folks have already heard me with Laraji Venus earlier in this uh, podcast. So uh, one of the things, I'm, one of the works I'm very proud of, which is also an educational work. It was designed for string orchestra, for string teachers to use, and it's on smart music, is my Bollywood string score that uh, Kender published, because one of the things I started doing that didn't exist back then was to make backing tracks for string orchestra to perform with, but also for the members of the orchestra to rehearse at home with. Mm. This came out of several realizations. One is that band players start playing with a rhythm section from day one. Yep. And um, string players don't. Chorus at least has uh, a pianist accompanying them, so that's their rhythm section, right? Uh, it could be their choral director or someone, you know, if the school has a budget that they bring in that accompanies them. Learning in a void is boring, discouraging, not at all inspiring, and not fun. Standing at a music stand by yourself to get ready to play a part with your orchestra where you don't get to hear everybody's parts. When you get to the orchestra, you're not listening to anyone else, you're just listening to yourself, hoping to get it right. Which is, you know, I'm making a massive generalization, but I have done thousands of school residencies at this point, starting in 1976. So I, I haven't seen much different to, to counter what I've just said. I say to string orchestra directors, if a section isn't listening when you're rehearsing a single section, have that single section teach the rest of the orchestra a line that they're working on in their section. Mm -hmm. They get it better, everyone learns it, and then they have ears for what's going on in another section while they're playing their own part. Because believe me, if you came up this way and then join a rock band and build your rock skills, I'm willing to bet you don't have the ears to take in what the rest of the band members are doing. You're mostly listening to yourself. And we have to do that a lot to tune all of our pitches, granted, but we also have to develop the ears for what everyone else is doing because that's when it really becomes exciting and we can, we can play volleyball with them. We can really throw ideas around. So the Bollywood Strings piece, uh, is one of a, of a cluster of pieces I created backing tracks for. And I also, a friend went to India and he's a photographer and he came back with hundreds of pictures. So I made a video to perform with so that you, you see the whole experience in India as well. This is the first work that I know of that was composed for string orchestra with a dedicated electric violin part. And then I also at that time had worked through a concept that I call Flexi Score, 
where I wrote a junior level of Bollywood strings and a senior level, and they interlock or stand perfectly well on their own. They can be performed without the electric, the junior electric violin part or the senior, or it can all come together into one. Um, so it's very flexible depending on that particular location and what they want to achieve. So I recorded the performance of it with the video. There's a, a video version with, with me, with, with sound, without sound, uh, from the electric violin. I'm playing on an NSX, NXT. In terms of recordings, all of my earlier recordings were acoustic violin and voice. I've never made a recording that featured me as an electric player except the very first recording, which is called Empathic Connections with Laraji Venus. And so there I'm amplified and I'm using a few effects. Uh, but depending when I was performing live with theater or with dance or, or on my own, you know, that, that got woven in depending on where, what, where I was, etc. Uh, so I don't have a lot of audio for that, but you've just heard a little bit of Bollywood strings as I was describing this. And uh, at the very beginning of this podcast, you heard me on my NS NXT soloing over a work called Techno Strings, which is also for string orchestra. And that's riff-based. It's a riff-based piece of music for orchestra. And, and so that gave, gave you a sample of soloing on that work. In terms of my live performances, you have to keep in mind that depending on what year you start doing this, if you're young and you're just starting out now, it's all about doing stuff that is recorded and videoed and, you know, it's all about that. But when I was coming up, we just didn't do that. It was well, a, first of all, the quality of gear wasn't there to get you a good quality recording that you would have been happy with anyway. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, you could, the, the big dogs have got, you know, they're bringing trucks along with them and splitter snakes. And you could, you could spend, a, you know, the first live recording I did with a band would have been in the, gosh, the late nineties. We literally had a truck next to the stage with a splitter stage, with a splitter snake and an own recording console. And it went to four ADAP machines. And then the whole thing had to be taken to a studio and synced and simply time coded. And then, then mixed and mastered and this is you know thousands of dollars to do this fast forward just 10 years and you've got a little mini disc player that you can just plug into an aux out of the board and get like digital quality audio unmixed but it's it's fantastic quality audio and now you can get track by track audio just on a zip drive that just you just stick it into your board and you get track by track audio it doesn't cost a dime crazy isn't it? it's just uh, unimaginable back then that we'd be where we are now i mean even 10 or 15 years ago we couldn't even we couldn't even fathom that exactly exactly 
So, yeah, I mean, going back to the 70s and 80s, people, you, we can read a lot about, like, reviewers have been to these concerts and been like, well, I can tell you about it. But, you know, we don't have any, we don't have great audio from most of these concerts. Yeah. We, um, I, you know, I did two national public radio series. The first one, The Talking Violin, is five one-hour shows. And if you go to julielyon.com, J-U-L-I-E-L-Y-O-N-N, you can hear all the historic players, five hours of, of music I have posted in my on my archives section. And you'll, we worked very hard to process that audio and upgrade it as best we could back then. That was 1981, I believe we were working on that. Um, but you'll hear how the audio it improves over time because a lot of the stuff particularly for the blues fiddle show which is one hour of the historic blues fiddlers that that all came from 78s now mm. old hat records later reproduced that audio again and spent even more money and time getting it up to date but um, I highly recommend listening to that series because then you get the history all the way through of, of I focused on creative, creative strings across the 1900s, basically, is um, the talking violin. The second series was a part of a massive NPR series. Um, it was hosted, the first series I, I hired Billy Taylor to host because he had performed with several different jazz violinists when he was coming up as a jazz pianist. But the second series, Nancy Wilson, the vocalist, hosted, and um, that was called Jazz Profile. So they did shows featuring different instruments. And so I did the string one. Um, the, uh, the music for that, of course, is more up to date. So you hear better, better audio. But uh, um, I love how you describe the progression, Matt. You know, that really sums up. Because all I had was a little cassette tape recorder back then. and than later my Tanberg, but it never occurred to me to bring that to gigs and right. record. We just didn't think that way. Yeah, I think the first recording project that I was involved in outside of, you know, when I was a kid, I had been involved in some things doing, you know, Coca-Cola commercials and all that and a concert for NPR. But it was, I mean, in my rock career, it would have been in the sort of the late 90s and it was tens of thousands of dollars to get a CD recorded in the studio. Yeah. I mean, it was just, and you make most of your money with live performances or, or teaching. And so, you know, selling this audio is, well, I mean, I could go spend 20 grand to record the CD, but am I, am I ever going to make my money back? Probably not. Well, absolutely not. I mean, the last recording I did, the last CD I did mixing America, which I'm very proud of, um, that was in 1995. That cost me 25 grand. And I still have boxes and boxes of CDs. I'll never make that money back. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, and I have many colleagues who have said to me, I'm, I'm never going to record again. And it makes me feel so sad, you know, because of the expense. Yes, you can do it at home, but, you know, why haven't I? <laughs> because. I like to play live and I like to play with drums and bass and you know all that and I don't like to separate the instruments into isolation booths. I like the live vibe 
and that is not possible in my home. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, any it's gotten to where it's it's fairly simple to get really high quality live recordings. You've got to have the right gear. But it's it's finally possible now with less than $10,000 worth of gear to get amazing professional quality recordings, but that's like really recent. And then once you make that recording, then there's the cost of promoting it and distributing it and all And Spotify of wants to pay you three-tenths of a cent per stream. And, exactly, yeah. exactly. And people don't buy CDs anymore because, like, who even owns a CD player? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could certainly feel the whole world of musicians weeping when we all went into quarantine. Because when you're in a situation where you're going to make more performing than you are trying to sell your recordings, and now you don't have the bucks to make recordings, nor do you want to invite people into your home to record together, right. and um, you can't go out and perform, that's a pretty hefty, but I'm very proud of all of my colleagues. I watched how they reinvented themselves, and uh, you know, we all those of us who have lived creative lives, I turned back to my jazz teacher from the late 70s, early 80s, a protege of Lenny Tristano, the founder of the cool jazz movement. My jazz teacher, Sal Mosca, said to me when a recession hit just when I was about to graduate from college, and I, I came to my lesson, I said, I feel so sad. I'm about to step out into the world and a recession just hit, and I don't know if I'm gonna be able to earn a living as a musician. And he laughed, not at me, but he just did a little dry chuckle. And he said, Julie, musicians know how to live between the cracks. It's the nine to fivers that will suffer, but you never will. You'll always reinvent yourself and you'll always survive. And he was right. Well, we're improvisers. That's what we do. We'll improvise. That's right. And I actually do know a number of like outstanding classical players that when this thing hit and they had to pivot, they were screwed. Yes. Because they know how to do that thing, but they only know how to do that thing. Yep. And, you know, there's stories of of musicians with very advanced degrees in music that didn't know how to plug a microphone into their computer. Yep. So as far as the ability to pivot or do something different, those of us who live between the cracks, you know, we've kind of had to fly by the seat of our pants our entire careers, well, this isn't any different exactly. from that. Exactly, exactly. You know, I started teaching over Skype when Skype first came into existence because uh, injured musicians that were, you know, a continental way and couldn't afford to fly in, I figured out how to work with them over Skype. But when I offered that to string teachers, hey, you can't afford to fly me out to your school or, you, can, you know, your ASTA chapter can't afford to fly me out, we could do this on Skype. They're like, what's that? I don't know how to use that. I, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't, I can't use that. The pandemic has done us a favor in that sense because they're all now very <laughs> savvy as to how to do these things. And I've actually seen a number of schools use the time to buy electric instruments and suit up and get ready for the 21st century. So I, I think we're... Uh, <laughs> We're coming out into a different world. Yeah, it used to be just grab a 13-year-old. They know how to do it. Yep. <laughs> but now everybody's kind of figured it out, more or less. Exactly. Well, they don't feel intimidated anymore, and that's really, really important. Well, well hey, thank you question? so much for doing this interview. This has been a lot of fun. I'm glad.
And uh, I hope everybody digs this. You told people what your website was. Tell them again where they can find uh, your music and your books. www.julielyon, J-U-L-I-E-L-Y-O-N-N, as in Nancy Nancy, dot com. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. This was great to talk to you. Another rock star violinist in the can. <laughs> Woo, good times. If you couldn't tell by all the laughing, we had a really good time recording this, and I hope you enjoyed listening. As a program note, I have started grad school at the University of Illinois, working on my master's degree in electric violin. My schedule just got really, really, really busy, so we're going to be cutting back on the frequency of these releases a little bit. I've got one really special interview in the can that I've been jonesing to get for a long time. I want to get a chance to edit it, I'll get it out. But we're going to go on a bit of a break and probably just bring you an episode here and there for the foreseeable future. If you're looking for some killer content, please check out Christian House's podcast, Creative Strings, and Tracy Silverman's podcast, For the Greater Groove. Both of those cats have been guests on this program, and we love them and their work a lot. So until next time, play loud, play proud. See ya!